Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. Have you ever been lost? I have. Full disclosure, my mother would have a very different version of this story, but as a toddler, I got lost for a few moments in a Barnes & Noble. Remember those? I remember being found. The relief, the joy. That's about as much as I've ever been lost, physically at least. We've all been lost in some way. Most of us run from that feeling. We want to be secure in ourselves, in our world, in our communities. Who wants to feel alone? Or worse yet, surround yourself with the loss. To go searching for them, connecting your soul to theirs, never 100% sure if you'll find them, but pressing on nonetheless. Thankfully, there are people like this in our world. People like my next guest, Mike Guvowski, founder of the Israel Dog Unit. This is my conversation with Mike Guvowski. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Can you tell everyone kind of what you do and what your organization does? Well, the Israel Dog Unit, I mean, exactly like it sounds, we work with service dogs to save lives in Israel, both in the area of uh, security, protecting Jewish people and towns against terrorist activities. But most of our work is looking for missing people. And there's every year approximately 4,000 people who go uh, missing in Israel that are reported missing. And we're called out just about every day to look for somebody that's missing. I would imagine in your childhood you had a dog. How did you guess? (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me about the dog? Well, I grew up with dogs. And um, in fact, it's interesting because um, one time somebody uh, started up with with my sister and yelling some anti-Semitic curses at her. And the dog just spontaneously sprung forward and chased the anti-Semite away, even bit the anti-Semite. The girl that was taunting her needed stitches. Wow. Uh, and this wasn't an attack dog or anything. This was just a dog that saw somebody hostile that was bothering its owner. And that's natural for dogs to protect their owners. They have a sixth sense, maybe a seventh as well. What do you think that is? You know, it goes back a long, long ways back in the time of the Bible already. The Torah says, the Bible says that when the Jews left Egypt, that the uh, dogs didn't bark. They helped the Jewish people that they wouldn't be detected by the Egyptians who would have, you know, harmed them, run to them from uh, the exodus from uh, Egypt. So we go back a long way with dogs. And uh, dogs are used by armies and police around the world to, to protect people and to detect bombs, to detect drugs, and, uh, and also to help find people because they have a special uh, ability to sniff. They can sniff things and they can smell things that we can never dream of smelling. How many times better is a dog's smell than ours? Well, I don't really know how to, like, you know, calculate that. Some people say thousands times uh, better. Wow. It's different. I mean, like, when, when, when we make a cholent, you know, when we make a, a stew and you have the potatoes and you have the onions and you have the meat and you have the beans, we smell one big, 
you know, still we we smell one big chillin' you know, when we whiff the pot of uh, the brew. But the uh, the dog can actually separate each item that's in that pot and smell it separately. If, if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're hostile, the dog senses that. Somebody can pass by the dog and all of a sudden the dog will start going crazy. And the person means harm to the dog or to its handler. The dog can detect that by body language and by smelling. They also have natural night vision, for example. They can see things at night that we can't see. So God created different species and uh, with different attributes and different abilities, and dogs can do things that we can. And it makes a perfect team, man and dog, man's best friend. When did you find the IDU? We started the IDU uh, approximately 21 years ago when there was a lot of terrorism. And, you know, we were reading the newspapers, people getting blown up in cafes and in buses, and we wanted to do something meaningful to prevent some of this bloodshed and to save lives. But what can civilians do? Obviously, they can't put a policeman in front of every bus stop and in front of every uh, Jewish town and in front of every restaurant. So we, maybe we can, though. Maybe we can bring in volunteers from around the world, bring them to Israel, encourage them to make Aliyah, but even if they just come for a year and have them uh, study dog training and actually use these dogs to protect Jewish towns to patrol and um, we, we started doing it, and it was very, very successful, our pilot. Everyone said it would fail. How can you take kids from France or America or wherever they're coming from and just give them a dog, and they're going to start patrolling around some Jewish town? And they're it gonna, does sound a little kooky, sounds crazy. No? Yeah, I, yeah. All and, the best ideas are. You know what? I also I started believing all those uh, naysayers, and I thought also this didn't have a chance. And uh, the night before we started the program, originally, I'm talking 21 years ago, our first course which had 12 people, six people from Israel and six people from abroad that came to be volunteers. And uh, I was about to throw, throw the towel in. I said, you know, this can't work. Everybody's telling me this can't work. How are we going to get the... I was looking around me at these kids that are coming here. These kids are going to they're going to do things that the IDF is not able to do and the police are not able to do. I was in the States. Uh, I flew back for the course. I was in the States to raise money to pay for the dogs that we had just brought in from Europe, from Belgium and um, Holland to pay the trainers. I got a phone call when I was, uh, before I was changing flights in England, coming back to Israel. And the, the phone call said, that your dogs just prevented a terrorist attack in Samaria, where they were being trained in a town called Partapuach. And I said, you know, I thought they were exaggerating. They were trying to encourage me. Yeah. And when I came back to Israel, I was met at the f- front gate of the town. I came in with the taxi and they said, who are you? I said, oh, I live here. You know, they said, oh, we never saw you before. We're on, we're reserve soldiers here. We've been here for, for three weeks. I said, well, that's because I was in the States, but I live down there in that house. And they said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Mike. And they said, Mike, you're the guy with the dogs. And I said, yeah, your dog saved our lives last night. I said, well, well tell me about it. And I brought a cameraman there and I, I said, I got to put this on tape. Uh, we videoed it. And uh, this soldier was saying, I'm not political. In fact, I'm, I'm on the opposite side. I'm extreme left. I don't even want to be here. I don't even think Jews have a right to live here. But I'll tell you one thing. Your dog saved my lives, and who knows, countless lives last night. And I, I support you bringing more dogs here. And that's, this way we won't have to come and guard these towns. The soldiers said this. Yeah. So, uh, there was a terrorist that shot at the bootka of the soldiers, the booth where they were, uh, you know, guarding. And uh, they couldn't detect even the source of fire because, you know, things echo. But dogs have the ability to determine where the gunfire was coming from. They led the GSS, the police. They led them down straight into the wadi and they uh, helped them uh, catch the terrorists that were uh, that were shooting at this at this town so 
I, I realized that that's like a sign from heaven that we got to continue this thing. You know, I was about to give up and I said, okay, this is the night before the course started. And then we started and um, we learned that the, the people that were volunteering from abroad, we found out that they were more serious than the Israelis. We thought the Israelis would be the, you know, the main part and the kids, they'd clean up a little bit, they'd walk the dogs, but the local people didn't have the time and didn't have the uh, energy to go out at night and patrol, and, and these kids did. And so we started the program. The first 10 years was just security, but uh, 10 years ago we were contacted by the fire department, and they said they wanted us to train dogs that can find missing people under rubble if there's an earthquake or building collapses or in the wilderness if an autistic child or or an uh, elderly uh, person with Alzheimer's goes missing or a psychiatric case. And uh, we started that, and uh, we saw that there's a real need for it here. You know, I never would have guessed that there's such a need. I always would have thought that the Army and the police fill in and do it. But uh, there's a great need. And we're, we're called four or five times a day from different police precincts or from family, private families around the country that are looking for a loved one. We don't take every case, but the cases where we think it's a, a serious risk and it's life or death, you know, we go out. Even on Shabbat, a lot of our guys are religious. But, you know, if it's to save a life, on a Seder night, or Passover, we were, we were called out to look for somebody. Yom Kippur, you know, we were called out. Uh, Purim, when we were listening to the Megillah, we were called out. You know, you, you, you hear the first few words of the person on the other line. And you know it's bad. You can tell. When they say the guy is 80 years old, he usually wears a, um, like a watch that has GPS and they can see where he went. But he took a shower before the holiday, and they didn't put the watch back on him. He had, didn't leave his house all year because of the corona. This was the first time he was out, and uh, already 10 hours has passed, and nobody's seen him. He left, like, the day before the Seder. So we heard that, and we, you know, I told him, I guess, at the Seder table, you know, I'm sorry to leave you here. I left him alone. And I went out with a bunch of guys, and we went searching. Unfortunately... It took us a week to find that man, and he was no longer alive when we found him. But an in interesting story, I don't know if you want to hear, but this was in Hadera, if you know where that is in Israel. One of the dogs was stolen during the search. Because we were there, when we go out and search, we're like no other organization. We stay there for the first three days, and we rotate. And we sleep in the car, or we bring folding cots in the field, and we just keep going until we find the person, if it's in the first three days, because the person can still be alive. We're not going to go home at night and the guy's going to be screaming for help on the, in the field and just die. You know, that's the most critical time to look at night and in those first three-day period. So we stayed in the field and we were rotating and uh, we have like this special mobile kennel that we attached to the car. Somebody came and stole one of the dogs and, and two puppies that we had there. Next day, the guy was found. And, okay, we've been here three days, guys. We're going back to the base now. But, but the, the dog handler, the dog's name was Aiden, the dog handler, Joseph, he said, I'm not going back. I said, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay in Khadera, walk around with matzahs, screaming, Aiden, Aiden, where are you? I mean, obviously, professional thieves broke in and took her. He said, I'm staying here. She wouldn't have abandoned somebody in the field or me. I'm not going to abandon her. I said, okay, guys, go back. And I stayed with uh, this fellow. In the morning, we got a hot tip from somebody that they knew where the dog was in this compound where there was a lot of stolen dogs in the Tanya, next town over. The police broke in, got the dog out, and that very same dog, a week later, found somebody in the Tanya.
that was missing. No way. Yeah. Wow. So it's a freaky story. It's full circle. Yeah. How did you get to Israel? Well, I, I grew up in a Zionist family, and uh, I always dreamed of coming to Israel when I was 18, right after high school. I told my parents, that's it, I'm coming to Israel. And I've, I've been here pretty much ever since. I mean, I was back in the States for like a period of like seven or eight years in, in between, because I originally came here in 1983, something like that. But I don't know how I got involved with the search and rescue stuff. I really thought originally it would just be like a hobby. You know, once in a while we'll go out, we'll, we'll help the authorities. The first search we, w- we went on, I think it was around nine years ago, uh, we were looking for a fellow named Shlomo Ariel. We never found him. I mean, we know where he is. We know what happened to him, but we never got to him. And it's an interesting story. He had walked seven kilometers east from Yehud. It's a town near Tel Aviv, Yehud. He walked for seven kilometers, got to Highway 6, jumped over the fence, and wandered into a closed military zone. It's near a quarry. It's very close to the highway. And it's a a big area that that extends for kilometers. It's a training base by an elite Israeli unit. And uh, they do a lot of shooting there, but not near the road, not near the quarry, but deeper into the area. And uh, he happened to wander into that area, and he was seen by somebody. In fact, the whole way there from his house, he was at a party the night before. Somebody slipped some sort of hard drug in his drinks, and he completely freaked out. I mean, he was just running amok. He passed by his house. His mother, who was half blind, said, Shlomi, come in the house, come in there. It was 2 in the morning. It was a Thursday night. And he, you know, he just ignored her and kept running. He, he already had his shirt off, his, he threw his phone away. He was barefoot. He had an olive branch in his mouth, and he was yelling the Ten Commandments. And he was running. It's never a good sign. Never a good sign, yeah. He jumps over the fence, and he's seen by another guy, a guy named Uzi, who works for the Antiquity Society in Israel. And even though it's a closed military zone, they're doing some, looking some ancient stuff over there. And this guy, Uzi... He has a very, very interesting past himself because he worked for the Imam. That's like the elite police anti-terrorist squad. And his job with the Imam was to uh, was to negotiate in hostage situations. So he's 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 a guy who knows what he's doing, and he he, you don't have to be a genius or or expert from the Imam to see that this guy's in trouble. He grabs this guy Shlomi and he says, "Hey, man, are you okay?" And Shlomi's, Shlomi's just screaming the Ten Commandments, and he's just freaking out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's, he, so he's holding Shlomo with one hand, and he's calling the, the police on the other hand, and he's saying, listen, this is a serious case. You better send a squad car down here. This guy needs help. The lady, you know, the, the answering the phone at the police headquarters, she's saying, could you please describe to us exactly your location? And he's saying, I don't know, I'm by a quarry, I'm by Highway 6, you got to come. And they said, well, we need to know the name of the quarry. And, you know, so he goes down 100 yards, looks at the sign. By the time he gets back, Shlomo is gone. Where is he? Well, we're, we're assuming he continued going east, which is where he'd be going for seven kilometers. How do we know he was going seven kilometers? We started seven kilometers west of there. But there were people calling the police all along his crazy journey from his house to this closed military area. He was jumping on cars and screaming and kicking. They were getting multiple calls all along this rampage of uh, Shlomi's. And uh, the, the police never connected any of this. They never connected the dots. They never sent a squad car. He continued going. And right near there, there's like this gook that comes out of the quarry. 
it's kind of like quicksand. It's like if you go, if you walk in there, you don't walk out. There's a huge pool of this there, and um, we later found out that he found his death in this. Um, we even found his footprints, but the quarry just kept. They just kept sending more and more of this Sid Gook. I don't know what you call it, meters deep. And even though we were able to show and prove that his footprints were there and the dogs indicated there, it took a very long time until we convinced the authorities to bring tractors and to start to um, try and look for him there. But he was far too deep in by then, and maybe even the body had disintegrated. What I want to get to is when we got there, when we were called in, and we got to the, uh, nearby to where he was last seen, they said, you can't go in there, that's a closed military zone. And the IDF was there, the special dog unit, and the police were there from the Mitsubim precinct nearby, you know, big officers, and they said, you can't go. I said, why not? They said, because it's a closed military zone. I said, well, it's right near the highway. This part can't be too dangerous, and you guys are police. But I'm just a fi- I was the head of the fire department's dog unit because we were volunteering through the fire department with the search and rescue. And um, I said, but can't you just call the army? I mean, you're the army. You know, let's just go in there for a half hour and look for me. It was last seen here by this guy Uzi. And they said, no, we can't get permission. They won't let us in. I could not sleep all night. Now, mind you, I'm just a simple guy, just a simple civilian who became the head of the fire department uh, dog unit because they wanted search and rescue dogs. So we. Is it a requirement that the head of the fire department has to have a slight Brooklyn accent? No. It's not a requirement. Uh, in fact, uh, it got me nowhere, I must say. I couldn't sleep all night. At 5.30 in the morning, I, I come back there with, with a few guys, and I said, we're going into this place. We called a number. There's a number that says, if you want to go into this area, it's a closed military zone. You can't go in unless you call this number and coordinate it. So we called the number, and, a, and a, a female officer comes down, and she says, what's the problem? Sure, you can go in. You're looking for a missing person. That's going to be life or death. He's gone for three days already. So I said, well, he may have died last night for all I know. Why didn't you let us in yesterday? And she said, nobody called me. That's when I realized, wait a second. I don't know how much they really care about missing people, especially if it's some psychiatric case or some old guy. But I do care about it, you know. And it's a person, and he's got a family, and he's got a face, and we're, we're going to do everything Mom. we can to find him. You know, I was obsessed with that case. We just kept going back, and then we found footprints. And as I said, the dogs indicated and uh, but we never got to the body but i realized from that point that there is a great need and we, you know more and more we've been called in to look for missing people now we do it privately with you know the idu not through the fire department and uh, there's a great need how do you not have a panic attack every time the phone rings you're asking a really good question because the fact is this phone here this is the headquarters if you will and um, I get calls one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning. I'm lucky if I can get an hour or two of sleep, you know, at night. And um, yeah, we, you, you hear the calls. A lot of them are nonsense or not serious cases, but a lot of them are serious. And it's a big responsibility to determine which cases you're going to go on and which cases you're not going to. This obviously was founded in a time of crisis that looks very different from today's Israeli reality. How did you cope with the intensity of those first few years? And did you ever think about like hanging up the towel and just saying it's a bit much and this is not my job? Well, you know, I think about that uh, every day. It's not easy to manage uh, volunteers that are coming from all different kinds of lifestyles. And, you know, sometimes the people that volunteer and are the most committed and dedicated to something like this 
are, you know, cases that are borderline to go missing themselves one day, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, because somebody who has a perfectly normal life and looks 100% normal and a professional person, what is he going to do day and night looking for missing people or, or running around patrolling? You know, he's not going to do that. He may do his three years of army service. He has no choice. He'll go to jail if he doesn't or whatever. He'll have to skip out of the army. And he may be eager to do his Miloim or something once, you know, once a year per month. But to do this day in and day out, you have to really, really be committed, um, really dedicated. And um, it's not easy. Do you ever keep in touch with the families of the people that either you helped found or unfortunately the people that no matter when you would have come, it just was not going to be good? Look, there are cases like that. And, and there are cases where we've missed people, where we've, you know, for different reasons, whether there were right reasons or wrong reasons, we made the wrong decisions, made the wrong turn, or, you know, should have detected the person, didn't. If you ever come to our dining room in, in Kratapur on our base, we have there three walls that we have pictures on. And one of the walls is people that we never found, cases that we were involved with, about 30 people there that we never found. The other wall is people that we found alive. And the other wall is a memorial wall of people that we got to too late. And like you say, in some cases, there was no way we could have gotten there on time. Yeah. But in some cases, uh, we could have. And this is something we, we, we live with, that we look at. It's, it's not just part of our wall, it's part of our hearts. And uh, we're constantly thinking about this. How do you cope with that? It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. And when you have a young volunteer and he comes on the search and, he, and you find a, a dead body, uh, you know, that's a rough that's thing. Heavy. Sometimes they need, you know, sometimes uh, we need guidance afterwards, you know, to get over it. You know, I try and be careful who I take on different searches, but you never know. You can be thinking that you're looking, it's a basic case, and you'll find the guy that's an hour after went missing and you can find trouble, you know. What's it like when you find someone that was missing and like that first interaction of like, oh, you're the person that we are out here for for days? It is an incredible feeling. And sometimes I like I pray that a really good volunteer is going to find somebody because I know once they found somebody, they're, they're, hooked. Never, they, they're hooked. But you, you're, some people have been in there looking for eight years and haven't found somebody, you know, it's uh, a lot of luck. There are a lot of muscle, you know, but it's an unbelievable feeling. I mean, you save somebody's life. I and mean, people go to the army, you know, they don't necessarily have as much opportunities as we do on a daily basis to save a life, you know. How many missions is somebody, even in an elite union, how many days out of the year is he in a situation where, where, where a policeman who's, you know, thinks he's saving the world? How many days, you know, can he actually say, I saved this life, you know? So it's an incredible thing. You find an old fellow who's got the beginnings of dementia and he's lying down in a bush and he can't get up and he's been there for two and a half days. Or you find a guy that was fired from work and had a rough day and took some pills and took some alcohol and he's in some abandoned building somewhere. Or a young girl who just got out of the army, but who has, you know, she just broke up with her boyfriend and she's really depressed and she took some, maybe some more drugs than she should have and she's lying unconscious in an abandoned building or in a field in Natanya and it's Erev Rosh Hashanah and you're thinking, oh, we really want to find her, we want to go celebrate and go home and we really, we'll make a great celebration if we find her alive and you find her alive. And then the policeman's coming to take the report 
and to you know it's like a, a investigation and he says well how did you find her in this spot i was here i was in this building and the wife, I said, well, she's in here. We didn't put her here. And he says, well, what floor did you go up to? What floor was she on? And I said, well, she was on the fourth floor. She was right there. We just found her. We went in there. And he says, oh, that, right. that's why I didn't find her. I only went up two flights. And you say, you know, that's, what's, that's the difference between our unit and all the other units. We're not getting paid. They are. Well, there are other volunteer units also. And we're not going home. They do. And we got heart. Might not be the smartest. We not, might not be... Uh, the most sophisticated, but we have heart and we care and we believe in this and we're going to find this guy if we can. We're going to do everything humanly possible. And I think that's what separates us from all of the other organizations. Yeah, there are good people and good organizations out there, but that little difference, that extra, going that extra yard to that tree that's just 20 yards away, you've already searched a huge field. There's just one tree left. It's that one tree. It's that one inch, that one yard extra that you do. That makes the difference. Tell me about the partnership between the human beings and the dogs. Dogs are our best friends. Uh, Man's best friend, that's not just an expression. We keep these old dogs with us because they've done so so much and they've saved lives. You know, we once had a dog that uh, that had a heat stroke out in the field. You know, the doctors said there's nothing we can do. We can give it transfusions. We don't know, even know if the dog will live. It probably won't even live. And if it lives, it definitely won't be a service dog. We laid out, I think, I think it was 7,000 shekels. I said, whatever it costs, do whatever you can to keep this dog alive. There's the thing, you know, to recognize the good that the dog has done for us. And I, I, I appreciate it. Even if the dog, and that dog later saved lives. It's, you know, they said it would wow. never be a service dog. It, it was a service dog for years after that and saved lives. Do you have like a verse or a line of Talmud, Torah, song, a poem, something that kind of just sits in the back of your head as you're searching for people or, or trying to continue with your work or you're getting woken up at 1 a.m. in the morning and, you know, you can't decide if you want to go and you're just kind of like there's a motto or a song that just tells you that this is exactly where God wanted you in the world? I really have to think about that, but I know one thing. Um I can't say that I want to go out and, and look for people or I want to go out and, and do this, which could be life-threatening, which you're tired. You, I could be making a lot of money doing other things. So I can't say it's something I want to do, but it's something that I feel uh, that I have to do. And it's something which you feel that if you're not there, who else is going to do it? You know, and I think of like this old guy, like the, the fellow that we're looking for, this Vladimir uh, Magit, from uh, Kirit Atta that we still have a vow. We're looking for him now 13 days. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking of this blind elderly man that walked out of his house, a new house that he's living in, doesn't know the area, can't really see much. He's not completely blind, but he's very, very limited vision. And, and I envision this guy falling in the field and, and crawling and not knowing, maybe, maybe he sees lights, you know, a kilometer away, some highway somewhere. And, he, and he's just crying. I, I cannot accept the fact that this guy is in a field crying to be saved. I mean, now he's probably dead if he's there. But, and, and that nobody hears him and that nobody's looking for him. That could be you. That could be me uh, in, in any scenario or in X amount of years when, you know, our memory is fading and we're walking around and we don't know where we are. And that's a horrifying thing, to, to die alone and to to die in that way with the, the body will probably be you know be eaten by the uh, 
beasts in the field, the animals. Um, I can't accept that. I can't accept that society will allow this to happen. And we all have responsibility. Our motto in the unit is don't ask how we're going to do it. Because there's always things that can hold you back from doing it. If we go out now, then we won't have energy. Yeah. We wake up tomorrow, we won't do this, we won't do that. Don't ask how we're going to do it. There will always be obstacles and questions. You'll never have all the answers. Ask what needs to be done and get it done. You know, and, and that's our motto, and that's what we do. Uh, and uh, we take pride in it. As you should. Well, what a motto and what a life that you've kind of lived and that you're going to continue to live. You know, 21 years searching for people with a man's best friend in Eric Chisarell. I can't think of a better way to spend a life and to, and to build this country, you know, and, and hopefully rebuild families that feel broken in really tough times. Yeah, that's, that's also one of the, I think one of the biggest contributions that we make in Israeli society is not so much saving the individual person that we may be saving, but when you get there and the family says, somebody is listening to me, somebody cares. And they say, how much money do you want? We say, we're not doing this for money. Why are you doing No, tell us the truth. How much do you want? Like that girl that we saved, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the story I told you about the policeman that went up two flights and we went to the fourth flight and we found her. And her friends called us up from the army. They they, all got, they said, we have this girl that she was a great girl and she's, a, and she's going for her master's degree and she's educated and she's just depressed and we're worried about her. And she would have died if we wouldn't have found her because she was already unconscious. And um, you're doing this for free. You're doing this... You're doing this for people that blows their mind. It's the Israel of yesterday when there was this type of spirit, this spirit of giving, the spirit of, you know, now there's a spirit of taking. You know, don't ask what we ask what you can give for the country. You know, that, that, that doesn't exist here anymore. You know, it's like there was a certain spirit. Even when I came here in the 80s, you feel the difference. Now it's like, you know, everybody's at everybody else's throat. Everyone wants to kill each other, you know. Uh, I think we, we bring that, that special spirit to people. It's like, why are you doing this? You know, we're doing this because we want to help you. Well, what, what's the catch? But there is no catch. Mike Guzowski, founder and uh, director of the IDU Israel Dog Unit, thank you for your tireless work, for reuniting families, and for making sure that uh, all those who are lost in this, this country uh, have the best shot at being found. And it's really an honor to meet you. Thank you very much. As I thanked Mike for meeting with me, he smiled. I may have been the first person ever to interview him. He could have sat with us for hours, it seemed. He liked talking about his work. I think it was therapeutic for him to talk about what happens when he leaves Shabbat dinners or Passover or another part of his life at a moment's notice to find someone he's never met. And each time, another family's tragedy and panic becomes Mike's responsibility. A burden he wears with a smile, with optimism, with man's best friend by his side, to ensure that God's creatures can be found the same way God brought them into this world, alive, together, and whole. And we have Mike to thank for that. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. 
Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi, and our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zine. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.